0: Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. These days are some of the most challenging days of the entire year. We call it the three weeks, or now we're into the the nine days leading up to Tisha B'Av. And so it's good to just check in What is our philosophy about sadness? And Reb Shlomo, I think, put it absolutely brilliantly when he said that you can be sad with the outside of your heart, but inside your heart, you always have to be besimcha. You always have to be happy. That actually answers a lot of paradoxical, existential questions of how do you deal with tragedy? We know that we're supposed to be happy, but how can we be happy? And so this simple teaching gives us a way forward through the fog, which is you can be sad with the outside of your heart, but on the inside of your heart, you always have to be besimcha. You always have to be happy. And sort of a partner teaching with that, but now you can sort of get into the depths a little bit more with this, is that the Gomorrah teaches that when the month of Adar comes in, of course Adar is the month where Purim is and it's, it's the happiest month, famously the happiest month. So the Gemara teaches that when Adar comes in this month, you increase in happiness and when Av, Av of course is, is the month that we're in right now which is with all the tragedies of the Jewish people over history, when Av comes in, you decrease in happiness. So again, when, when Adar comes in, you increase in happiness When Av comes in, you decrease in happiness. It's always about happiness. You're either increasing in happiness or joy, or you're decreasing in happiness or joy. And now return back to the teaching from Reb Shlomo. With the outside of your heart, you can be sad. But with the inside of your heart, you always have to be happy. Because that's the baseline. Simcha, happiness is the baseline. Okay, so. Let's talk historically for a moment because there's something that's kind of very surprising about this period. And it tells us a lot about human nature and about ourselves and the work that we have to do in ourselves today. And that's the following. When the first base of Migdash, the first holy temple in Jerusalem, was destroyed, it was destroyed for three reasons. Idol worship, spilling of blood, meaning murder, and immoral sexual connections. And by the way, There is a halacha, very interesting halacha, that if someone puts a gun to your head, God forbid, and says, do one of these three things or I'll kill you, the person has to submit to death. So that's the big three. (laughs) That's why the first Beis HaMikdash, the first holy temple, was destroyed. Now, the holy temple was rebuilt 70 years later. The second Beis HaMikdash was destroyed. Why? The rabbis teach us, Because of hating each other for no reason. Sinas chinam. And it's been 2,000 years approximately since the Beis HaMikdash has been rebuilt. Now let's think about that for a second. You've got the big three on one hand and the Beis HaMikdash gets rebuilt 70 years later. And then you have people just hating each other for no reason, and it's 2,000 years, and the base of Migdash still hasn't been rebuilt. So you say, those are the three biggest things, and yet we recovered from them so quickly? And the answer is yes, and I heard this analysis, which is that the reason why we recovered from them so quickly is because they are essentially outside actions. Whereas hating someone in your heart is an inside action. And when it comes to uprooting things from your own heart, that takes a lot of time. So again, that's a very searing insight into human nature. How much time it's taken us. So how do we reverse this process? How do we stop hating each other for no reason? Well, first of all, someone observed, if you come up to someone and say, why are you hating people for no reason? They'll say, excuse me, I have terrific reason for hating people. <laughs> <They'll>, <laughs> they will not accept your premise. So that, that's number one. There's something very abstract about causeless hatred, hating people for no reason. It's hard to wrap your mind around that. And it's hard to apply it to yourself because it's just hard to get traction on that idea. By the way, that doesn't mean that you can't have complaints against people, especially complaints against people who have wronged you emotionally and financially and perhaps even physically. So let's just make that distinction very clear. And we have a court system and we have ways to adjudicate those type of wrongs. So in other words, we're a very practical people. The Jewish people are very, very practical. And so it's not just about wholesale forgiveness, but there crosses a line where pettiness becomes justified in our hearts in a way that we feel as though we've been wronged in a way that perhaps is more a reflection of our own limitedness emotionally than it is about the crime that was committed. And I remember hearing a story about a yeshiva boy. And he goes up to the Rosh yeshiva and he says, all of the students are insulting me. Everywhere I go, people are insulting me. And the Rosh yeshiva explained back to him, that's because your ego is all over the place and they can't step anywhere without walking on your ego. So if you find that everyone Wherever you go, people are insulting you. Guess what? More likely than not, that's your problem, (laughs) not their problem. It means your ego is absolutely everywhere. Nevertheless, I think that there's a connection historically. Remember, at Mount Sinai, something absolutely epic happened before we got the Torah. It's not just as as Rashi brings that we became like one person with one heart before the Torah was given. I think it's because we became like one person with one heart that the Torah could come down from heaven. In other words, it's not just like, Yeah, and then we left Egypt, and then the sea split, and then we got to Mount Sinai, and then we were like one person with one heart, and then God gave us the Torah. No, no, no. We came together like one person with one heart. We made this awesome vessel to hold this extraordinary light, a light that could only be contained in this world by all of us joining our hearts together like one. When that happened, the Torah came down. So now with that in mind, before we get the Ten Commandments, which contains the whole Torah, the whole revelation of the Torah Mount Sinai, first there's the chapter about Moshe's father-in-law, Yisra, who is probably the most famous convert to Judaism ever. And it's to show you the extraordinary, covet, respect, honor that we give people who join the Jewish people. Can you imagine that the most epic event in human history the giving of the Torah is named after someone who converted to Judaism? That's extraordinary. I mean, if there's ever a Parsha in the Torah that should be named after Moshe, it's the one where we get the Torah, where he goes up to heaven and gets the Torah, for goodness sake. Why isn't that Parsha's Moshe? But it's not. It's Parsha's Yisra, which is extraordinary. So anyway, before we get the Torah at Mount Sinai, Yisra teaches about the court system he gives Moshe Rabbeinu the following information how can you have a line of people like who knows what it was hundreds thousands of people asking questions to Moshe Rabbeinu and adjudicating court cases you're going to get all worn out you're not going to be able to survive this type of wear and tear set up smaller courts larger courts largest courts, and then ultimately, if they still can't figure it out, they can come to you. And Moshe Rabbeinu says, "Okay," and he adapts that system. And that's the judicial system till this day. Okay, what point am I making? Before we come together as one person with one heart, a system of courts is established so that those things where we have legitimate complaints against each other And people have honestly wronged each other, can be addressed before we come together as one. In other words, there has to be justice. And that is the Torah way. Because otherwise, you're dwelling in fantasy. And you're asking people to exist on this level that human beings don't exist at. You know, to paraphrase Shakespeare, if you cut me, do I not bleed? Human beings are human beings, and we have to be addressed as such and treated as such. And that's part of the honor that you give to another person by acknowledging the reality of their emotions. Okay. So now, having made that point, let's get back to the larger point, which is that we have to come together, and we have to uproot this type of causeless hatred. So, what is the action that correlates with causeless hatred? In other words, causeless hatred, sinas chinam, it's a little, like I can't quite put my finger on it. But if you tell me the action that causes it, then I can get a much better grasp on it. So the rabbis provided us with the answer to that question. And the answer is Lashon Haram. Which means that when we speak in a certain way, that that essentially is the agency, the means through the way hatred is created. Which is, if you think about it, it's kind of scary that you kind of summon hatred into the world through speech. That's, that's how it happens. Isn't that interesting? Now, a lot of Lush and Hara, a lot of the sort of the factory, the manufacturing of hatred in this world is kind of done really casually and really carelessly. You know, I'll tell you something crazy. Do you know that the United States, this is true, you can look this up on the Internet. Although that, that sounded stupid, what I just said, right? <laughs> you can also look up the population of Martians in my pocket right now on the Internet. You know what I mean? But anyway, this, this, is, this has been acknowledged as an actual historical fact. Did you know, did you know that the United States accidentally dropped an atomic bomb on the United States (laughs) in North Carolina this happened during the 1950s and it didn't detonate it was an accident and it didn't go off look it up look it up can you imagine can you imagine it basically fell out of an airplane okay so now imagine just in terms of the way people talk, that so often we're basically dropping A-bombs without any sort of intentionality or thinking about it. And believe it or not, the rabbis say, if you want to know how great a challenge this is to us, the rabbis say that it's hard to get through a day without speaking avek Lashon Hara. The dust of Lashon Hara. So who is the master of these laws? So everybody knows it's the Chovitz Chaim. And he's the one who laid out all the laws for Shmiras HaLasha, guarding your tongue. And you might think that, wow, the Chovetz Chaim knew so much about the laws of Lashon Hara. He probably hardly spoke. And I heard from Reb Shlomo, he would speak for hours and hours at a time. In other words, the prohibition is not on not talking. Talk, go ahead, absolutely. This is what makes you divine. So there's nothing wrong with talking. It's just what are we talking about? So there's a story that the Chofetz Chaim was at some sort of gathering, and he was sitting with a bunch of people in the horse trading industry. And they realized who he was, and they were so embarrassed because they said, you know, here you are, like maybe the, the greatest holy man in the world, and we've been talking about horses for the last, you know, hour or so. And he said, no, 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 no. I'm just so glad you weren't speaking Lush and Hara. That was, that was his reaction. And there's another story where he was on the train and he was sitting next to someone and he was talking with this person and... Yes, where are you going? And the person says, the great Chovetz Chaim is going to be stopping at this train station and a lot of people are gathering to meet him, to, to honor him, and so I'm traveling because I, I, I want to do the same. Now he didn't realize that he's talking to the Chovetz Chaim. And the Chovetz Chaim says back to him, what's so great about the Chovetz Chaim? And the man slapped him across the face. And he said, how dare you talk that way about this great man of Israel? And then he found out that that was the <laughs> And you can imagine how horrible he felt. I mean, here he is, he's traveling to go to honor him. And the Chaim says back to him, no, 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 you taught me something. He says, because you're also not allowed to speak Lashon Hara about yourself. And this is a very, very important thing, because a lot of us who are, say, more sensitive and really try to, you know, try to keep the Torah as best as we can, try to be the best people we can, we would never say Lush and Har about someone else, and yet we're very quick to say it about ourselves. And I just want to tell you how toxic that is, because when you speak, you hear your own words. In fact, that is actually one of the halachas of saying Shema. You have to say Shema loud enough that you hear yourself saying Shema. And so a feedback loop is created that when you say negative things about yourself, you hear them and you believe them more. And you reinforce whatever negative self-image that you have about yourself. So a person has to be very sensitive about not speaking Lashon Hara not just about other people, but really about yourself. So there's a famous story that I'm sure you're all familiar with. As Reb Shlomo says, it's always good to hear again. Someone came to the Chovetz Chaim and said that they had spoken Lashon Hara and they wanted to know, give me a tikkun, give me a fixing, what should I do? And the Chovetz Chaim tells them, take a, a pillow filled with feathers, walk to the top of a high hill, rip it open, and then come back to me." So this seemed very kind of mysterious, like, what's going on? But the person does it, comes back to the Chovitz Chaim, and says, okay, I did it. And the Chovitz Chaim says, okay, good. Now go and gather up all the feathers. And the person says, what are you talking about? It was very windy over there. It's like, and that was like, you know, it was like a while ago. I don't know where all the feathers are. And the Chofetz Chaim says, exactly. That's what happens when you say something. The wind, so to speak, picks it up, and it goes to places that you can't even imagine. And it's very, very hard to get back. David HaMelech gave us the imagery of the tongue being an arrow. And if you use your imagination a little bit, the lips are sort of like, look like a bow. And so when you speak, it's kind of like firing an arrow through your bow, that the words shoot out like an arrow can go very, very far. The words shoot out like an arrow and they go to different places. Another thing that we should be mindful of is Lashon Hara. A lot of people think that Lashon Hara means that it's a lie, but you can say something that's 100% true. But if the words are hurtful, then it's still in the category of Lashen hara. So I, I've been in rooms more than once where someone has said something and someone else said, hey, that's Lashen And you know, instinctively, like they go, but it's true. Okay, so Mazel tov, it's true. It doesn't mean that you can say. It. Now there are exceptions. If someone is dating someone, and you happen to know that that, there's some red flags about that person, then you actually have an obligation to inform that person. Now, how you inform them and the words that you use, you don't have free reign just to mouth off about the person. You have to talk to a Rav, who will tell you exactly what it is that you can say. But you do have an obligation to tell the person. If someone is getting into business with someone who you know to be unethical, again, the same obligation applies to inform but under very strict guidelines and you have to inquire what are the guidelines before you do it right so so these these things are important and again what i love about this is that you see how practical torah is right you see how idealistic it is and at the same time you see how practical it is which i think is a beautiful thing okay so I want to share something personal with you. When I was in college, I made a, a close friend. And, you know, the, the nature of these relationships, especially friendships in college, is a lot of times they, they're very intense, even if they don't necessarily last a very long time. But just the circumstances of your life, everything is so epic and new and everything like that, that when you actually make a connection with someone, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it really means something. Even if you look back and you go, OK, well, how long were we really friends for? But that, that's almost beside the point. In the moment, you feel the reality of it. And so that was the case with me and this person. Anyway, we fell a little bit out of touch. This is during college. And during that time, this person became an addict. And kind of, you know, fell off the map a little bit. By the way, a brilliantly talented person. And then, thank God, he recovered from his addiction and was back in the loop. And, you know, time had kind of gone on because that's also, well, that's life, but it's also college and things like that. You know, we kind of went different ways, but... I still had a tremendous regard for him and and remembered the intensity of our friendship and and stuff like that. So, you know, I wanted to reconnect with him. And so even though we weren't that close at this point, in an attempt to really kind of reconnect with him and to talk about something meaningful with him, I wanted to talk to him about his addiction. And he really didn't appreciate it. Did Did, Did not appreciate it. As is, as is to be expected. Like, why would someone want to be reminded of something that was so painful from their past? Now, had he brought it up with me, that's a different story. But here, I was bringing it up with him, and again, just in my, in my defense, I was just trying to bond and, you know, express support. But it was misguided, it was wrong. It was, what, what I did was wrong. And the reason why I'm bringing that up right now is because I think a lot of us do it with each other. That in an attempt to sort of make conversation and bond and to have a meaningful conversation, a lot of times we bring up painful things about another person's past in order to talk about something of meaning. And we're positively motivated. But can I tell you something? It's a drag. Don't do it. If they want to bring it up with you, then that's something else. Then you can express support and friendship and love. But for you to bring up something painful from another person's past because you want to be better friends with the person, and I mean that in a positive way, that's very misguided. And that's an example of being over the laws of Lashon Hara, right? Where, Where we don't necessarily mean to be. Now, I'll give you another example. And again, I think we fall into this coming from a positive place, but it's a real negative. And I've seen this a lot in my life, okay? You know someone. Now, there's someone who you're closer with. And the person who you're closer with has a falling out with that person. And now the person who you're closer with demands as an act of loyalty that you no longer be friends with that other person. I think that this happens pretty often. And I think that this would definitely fall into the category of causeless hatred. Because that other person What did that other person do to you? That other person did nothing to you. And now this person who you are close to demands that you hate this other person? Beware. Beware of that situation. Because that is a common event. And and the, the person will tell you that if you really love me, you'll hate them. This will be like a loyalty test. So I want to go deeper, and I want to just try to try to address how we can get rid of the hatred in our own hearts. Let me give you a visual. Imagine you're by a fire. As long as you're close to the fire, you stay warm. But now, imagine you get further and further away from the fire. The farther away you get from the fire, the colder you get. In other words, the further we get from our understanding of oneness, the colder we get, and the more hatred sinks in. The closer we are to the core of our own being, the more we see each other as an extension of ourselves, since we all share one soul and not as the other. So how do we how do we make ourselves an integrated whole being so I heard from the Eretzvi Rav Frumer, who was the Rosh Yeshiva of Chachmei Lublin which was the most famous yeshiva in the world he said how do you know if the Torah that you have in your mind has actually entered into your heart right because that's what we're talking about we're talking about the synthesis of the mind and the heart And he gave a very, very practical, simple answer. If you're doing it, then it's in your heart. If you're not doing it, it's still in your mind. And so on a practical level, the more we fuse together our hearts and our minds, the more oneness we are going to see around us. So that's why I really feel like if there's one thing that a person needs to work on, and I include myself in this till my last day, is to viscerally, palpably have it carved into our hearts, the goodness of God. Because all changes come from that understanding. If every time you get into a traffic jam, you can say to yourself, God is saving my life right now. Every time you have a date that you didn't get or you wanted that relationship to continue, but it didn't, you say, God is saving my life. God is opening up a new gate for a new adventure. Or God has something better in mind for me. I remember I gave a talk one time, and I think the favorite title that I ever came up with for a talk in all the years, which is, what if I'm not in a crisis (laughs) like like what if this is actually my life and it's not so terrible (laughs) so how do we maintain this type of closeness with ourselves and what is the origin of the fractiousness of this oneness so kabbalistically speaking cosmically speaking, there was an event at the beginning of creation, at the, the beginning of the creation of the material universe called Shfiris HaKalim, which we translate as the shattering of the vessels. In other words, the world had to be incomplete in order for us to finish the world with God. So let me, let me put it another way. When you play Monopoly... You get the race car, that's your game piece. You get the top hat, you get the wheelbarrow. Everyone gets a game piece. In this world, part of being a member of this world is you get a little bit of brokenness and you get a little bit of brokenness and you get a little bit of brokenness and everyone gets a little bit of brokenness. And now the idea is that you're to take your brokenness and put it with the brokenness of the world and to make wholeness and this is a very important point, so I really want you to concentrate and really understand this. When the vessel shattered, when brokenness entered into the world, God didn't get anything wrong. This was by design because he wanted us to take these pieces and put them together and realize his oneness in this world through our actions. That's, that's really important. That's really important. See, people have a lot of trouble figuring out God. Not that I figured out God. That's not the point. I was talking with someone, and he was like, boy, it just seems like there's so many errors in the world. And he was coming from an extraordinarily good place, and, and he was thinking about you know, really dark times in Jewish history. And he was like, with all the wrongdoing going on, like, doesn't it feel like there's going to be a divine reaction like in previous days? And I really felt like, okay, I have to have a conversation with him about what is punishment. Do we believe in punishment? Because he didn't use the word punishment. But everything he was saying was about punishment. And I said, okay, we don't believe in punishment. We believe in fixing and soul correction. And there's a really big difference between those two things. Because a lot of people, and again, they don't necessarily think this through, but it's in their heart. A lot of people are like, okay, I did this thing wrong, and now God is going to get back at me. Do you understand? Can I tell you? God is not petty in that way. That's not how God thinks. You did this thing. Now God is rolling up his sleeves. Oh boy, he's been waiting for this moment where he can like rage on you. If you think that that's what God is, you have no concept of God. You know, one of, one of my favorite stories, one of the Reb Shlomo Hebra, who used to be on the scene here in L.A., Ori the Ishi was his name, he, he told me that he picked up Reb Shlomo years ago in a Mercedes-Benz. Now, you don't hear it so much these days, but at least when I was growing up, there were a lot of people who would never buy a, a, a Mercedes-Benz because it was a German car and they're part of, in the Holocaust, right? So, now you don't hear it so much anymore, right? So, anyway, this person years ago, when this was a thing, went to pick up Reb Shlomo in a Mercedes-Benz. And he apologized to Reb Shlomo. He said, hey, you know, I I hope it's okay. I'm picking you up in a Mercedes-Benz. And Reb Shlomo said back to him, I'm way past that, brother. (laughs) What I'm trying to say is, if you think that you do something wrong and then God is just waiting to get you back, God is way past that, brother. You get it? So here's a way of... I'm trying to put this in a very, very simple visual, okay? Let's say you have to go in this direction, straight in front of you. But you're turning and you're running in the opposite direction. Now, the whole reason why you're in this world is to go in a straight direction in front of you. But instead, you're running in the opposite direction. The act of being taken and turned around doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good. It may even physically hurt. And the person who is experiencing that being turned around very well may experience that as punishment. But it's not punishment. It's soul correction. And that can be a very painful process. I'll give you an example. It could manifest itself as sickness, God forbid. Now, sometimes with sickness, what happens is a person is incapacitated and they have a lot of time to think about their life. And they go, you know something? Maybe I'm going to try this differently. And maybe I'm going to try that differently. And so that's the idea. It's not that... Oh, you did this wrong, so now you're being zapped with a sickness. That's not the idea. The idea is that God saw for that person that is the ideal environment for the person to be in to reconsider where their life is so that they can make adjustments. And God's got a million different ways to create that type of thinking space for a person, a million different ways. And the Rambam says, I'm always like fascinated by his use of this word. That if a person experiences setbacks in their life, negativity in their life, and they don't use that as an opportunity to reevaluate their life, listen to this word, it is axorius, which means cruelty. The person is being cruel to themselves. Cruelty. Can you imagine? A very strong word. So again, again, God doesn't punish. God doesn't punish. But the soul fixing and the opportunity that he gives for us to reorient ourselves is often discombobulating. So I gave you this this visual. A person is close to the fire, but the further away they get from the fire, the colder they become. That fire represents the oneness of this world, the oneness of God, and the further that we get from a palpable, visceral understanding of the oneness and all of us sharing the same soul, the further that we get away from that, the colder we get and the more things like and horror and causeless hatred and disconnection can come in. Now, let's go back to this idea of the shattering of the vessels. This initial shattering of the vessels, shveris hakalim, reverberate, reverberates and echoes throughout creation and history. When we ate from the tree of knowledge and brought death into the world, that was shveris hakalim. That was another echo of the shattering of the vessels. When Moshe Rabbeinu smashed the luchos, that was another echo of the shattering of the vessels of Shfirah Hakelim. When the temples were destroyed, that was another echo of Shfirah Hakelim, of the shattering of the vessels. The distance between us, between our hearts and our minds, is a reverberation of the shattering of the vessels, the fact that our minds and our hearts are disconnected. And now, for a final paradigm, or I'll give you a few more, just because this is just kind of part of Jewish literacy, what I'm telling you right now. Kabbalistically, there are four worlds. The top world is Atzilus, Atzilus is separated from the lower three worlds. That's also Shverus HaKalim. The land of Israel, physically, is separated, in terms of degrees of Kedusha, of holiness, from the other lands of the world. That shveris hakelem. And finally, our bodies and our souls, within each and every one of us, there's a shveris HaKalem, a shattering of the vessels, this separation. So we're born into brokenness. We're born into brokenness. Now remember... Just to contextualize that, I have to tell you something that's always like such an important Torah. Here's what everybody gets wrong. Everybody thinks that the world was perfect, that the Garden of Eden was perfect, and that we blew it, and that we're trying to get back to zero. All of history is trying to get back to zero. That's not it, that's not Torah. And as Rip Shlomo put it, so. Beautifully, if the Garden of Eden was so perfect, what was the snake doing there? If the Garden of Eden was so perfect, what was the snake doing there? And the point is that the Garden of Eden wasn't perfect yet. It was pretty darn close. But God created us to be partners with him to finish creation. Okay? And that's this idea of brokenness. We're born into a world with brokenness in it, but not because God couldn't make the world perfect. God easily could have made the world perfect. But God had a much grander idea and an idea which shows so much honor and covered to each and every one of us. He created us to be partners with him to finish it off. Can you imagine, you know, imagine, I don't know if you've ever seen, this used to be in a lot of movies when I, was, when I was a kid, right? And these are movies from before I was born. One of the big events in American history after the creation of the railroads was, they, they were like, you know, Americans are very ambitious. They were like, how about a railroad that goes all the way from the East Coast all the way to the West Coast? from New York to California, right? That was a big job. That was a huge job. So you know what they started doing? They started laying tracks from the west coast toward the middle of the country, and they started laying tracks from the east coast toward the middle of the country. And guess what? At a certain point, they met. And they have footage of this. I don't know if it's real footage, but it's like reenacted in movies. I think they called it the golden spike. Because when you put down railroad tracks, you had to hammer them in. Because you can imagine like when the railroad goes over the track, it shakes tremendously. So it's really got to be down. So what was the golden spike? The very last spike connecting the East Coast and the West Coast. That was incredible, right? Can you imagine? Being the person, how many people, how many years, how many lives were lost? How many people died creating that? Epic, it's totally epic. Each one of us is born with a golden spike. (laughs) Or since we're shaped like a spike, each one of us is the golden spike. So that's, that's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. You know, when I first came out here, working in Hollywood, like, if you told me you were writing a movie for Quentin Tarantino, that would be like, uh, (laughs) Or you were writing a movie for Steven Spielberg. It's like, how did you rise to the heights that the top, you know, or Christopher Nolan, right? How did you rise to the heights that you were selected to be partners with basically the greatest artist in the world? Like, I'm in awe, but can I tell you something? God selected each and every one of you, one of us, to be his partner. (laughs) And what is the job? The job is not making a movie that we may or may not go to or even like. The job is the finishing off of all of the universe. It's amazing. It's amazing. So the closer we are to the fire, the more we understand God's oneness. But guess what? When we're born... We're just close enough to the fire to know to walk toward the fire. But we're also just far enough away (laughs) that with a couple of steps, we don't even realize gradually how we're distancing ourselves and how we're alienating ourselves. And it happens incrementally. And so the answer is integration. We have to integrate ourselves. We have to reconnect our minds with our hearts. We have to reconnect our bodies and our souls. And when we become one, we will see oneness around us. When your mind and your heart is connected, when your body and your soul is connected, you will look at the next person, not as the other, but as an extension of yourself, and as an emanation of God. And I want to say that this is why, of all the five books of the Torah, Sefer Devarim, by the way, we read Sefer, we, read, we begin Sefer Devarim in the days before Tisha B'Av every single year. The rabbis fix the calendar so that whether it's a leap year, it's not a leap year, whatever is going on, the whole Jewish people, even if Israel and out of Israel were kind of reading different parshas up until now, when it comes to this parsha, everybody is on the same page. And it's always Sefer Devarim before Tishab every single year. And this is the only book of the Torah that begins with the letter Aleph. Now I want to tell you something that I learned, something really way out Kabbalistically, Okay. It's a new way. Well, it's very ancient, but new to probably all of us. It's a new way to draw the letter Aleph. And I've got a picture in it. Maybe I'll put the picture in as the illustration for this week's talk. Because just to gaze at it is sort of wondrous to see an Aleph written this way. But everybody knows Aleph is the first letter of the, of the Hebrew alphabet. So, therefore, it it correlates with the number one. And God is one. So, in that way, Aleph, you know, so to speak, is symbolic of God. Because Aleph is the number one and God is one. But it's deeper than that. Because we know that Aleph is also a Yud, a Vav, and another Yud. Which adds up to 26. And 26 is the number of the Yud Vav Vavke, God's holiest name. So now you see even deeper how the Aleph is like, can be compared to Hashem, so to speak. Of course, Hashem has no form, but symbolically. But now I want to tell you another way to write the letter Aleph. You ready? There's a way to write the letter Aleph where it's a Yud and two Vavs parallel to each other on the diagonal, and then the letter Yud. Now, interestingly, one of the ways we spell the letter Vav is Vav-Vav. So you have Yud on top, two parallel Vavs, which spells the word Vav, and then the yud below. Now, what does that add up to? That adds up to 32, because you've got two Yuds, that's 10 and 10, which is 20, Vav is 6, 6 and 6 is 12, 12 and 20 is 32. Now, why is that significant? So, the number 32, listen to this. The first letter of the Torah, and the Torah is the blueprint of reality, is the letter Bez. That's the number 2. And the last letter of the Torah is the letter Lamed of the word Yisrael, that's the number 30. So the first letter of the Torah and the last letter of the Torah add up to 32, which is the letter Aleph, when it's written in this very special divine way. In other words, one of the things that the Torah is called is God's mind. And what we dwell in, this thing that we call air, all of this space between where you're sitting right now and where I'm standing right now, do you know what we're dwelling in? God's consciousness. We're all in God's consciousness right now. So isn't it interesting that the oneness of God contains, when it's spelled the aleph, when it's spelled spelled in this special way, the entirety of the Torah, from the first letter to the last letter. And now, if you can make that thought deeper somehow, isn't it amazing that this number 32, lave, is the word heart? And it says God wants the heart. And it says in the Zohar that God, the Torah, and the Jewish people are one. What did we just say? Aleph, when it's written in that special way, is 32. That stands for God, so to speak, because Aleph is one. 32 is the first letter and the last letter of the Torah. That's God and the Torah being one. And 32 is our heart, the heart of the Jewish people. That's God, the Torah, and the Jewish people being one, just like the Zohar says. I'll give you one more illustration of the Torah being the letter Aleph. I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Kamarna Rebbe that when God spoke the Torah at Mount Sinai, the first word of the Torah is Anochi. So the Gomorrah says God spoke the first two commandments of the, of, the, of the Ten Commandments, but that everything was contained within that. But the deepest, deepest level is that God spoke the letter Aleph of the first word of his pronouncement. And the entire Torah was contained within God just pronouncing the word Aleph. Now what is so way out about that? Aleph is a silent letter. God pronounced something which was unpronounceable, the letter Aleph, and that contained the entirety of the Torah. So again, you see that the letter Aleph contains all of the Torah. And that we're all within the Aleph. And I'll give you another example that, that I came up with years ago, which just still amazes me. You know, in the Shmona Esrei, we say, Elokei Avraham, God of Avraham, Elokei Yitzchak, the God of Yitzchak, Ve, with a vav, V, okay, so it's Avraham, Ye, Yaakov. Now look at the letter Aleph again. So the letter Aleph stands for Avraham. The upper Yud stands for Yitzchak. The Vav stands for V, and the lower Yud stands for Yaakov. <laughs> Contained within the letter Aleph is Avraham, that's the Aleph, Yitzchak, V, Yaakov right? We're all descended from the Avos. God, the Torah, and the Jewish people are one. The fifth book of the Torah Sefer Devarim, the Rebbe's say, is basically the beginning of the Torah Shabbal Peh. That's the oral law. You have the written law and you have the oral law. The last book of the Torah was said by Moshe and then God said, Good, now write it down. So what's amazing about the last book of the Torah is it's simultaneously the oral law and the written law. In other words, what we have is everything is coming together with coherence. Each person is a letter of the Torah, but you speak. So you are a letter of the Torah, which means that you are Torah Shebek Tzav, the written Torah but you also speak and understand the Torah, and you explain the Torah, which means you're also the oral Torah. So each person is the written Torah and the oral Torah. And the idea is, the more we can make ourselves one coherent being, that we can integrate all of these ideas in our consciousness and in our heart, then we go close to the fire, then we reawaken the oneness that is already inside of us and we see the oneness in each other. And that I wanna say is the explanation of why Sefer Devarim, why we have this Parsha with the Aleph, this synthesis of oral law and written law all before Tisha B'Av. Because if we can get it together individually, then we'll be able to reveal the oneness in each other And the oneness of God, which is here right now, it's just ready to be revealed. And God has made us partners in that action. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for our new podcast, where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.